0: And welcome to Maybe Today Matinee, a podcast about all things film before you were born. I'm Monica. I'm David. This month we're watching short films, and today we're talking about Georges Méliès' 1902 film, A Trip to the Moon. The astronomers are assembled in a large hall, embellished with instruments. A crowd in wizard hats is assembled in an astronomy lecture hall as an older-looking gentleman speaks and gesticulates. The assembly talks excitedly and then changes clothes. In the next scene, we see several workers assembling a spacecraft. Once it's finished, a number of men from the lecture hall climb aboard and the spacecraft is launched, cheered by a crowd and a group of cheerleaders. As the rocket ship travels, we see the man in the moon and the rocket wedges itself into the moon's eye. The passengers alight and pull out their sleeping bags for a night of rest, during which time they can see human faces in the stars and mythological figures in the planets, moons, and stars. They arise when it apparently begins to snow, and they descend underground. In the caves underground, they discover strange mushroom-like life forms and are attacked by skeletal-looking creatures. They go to meet the leaders of the creatures in an apparent palace. The men attack the king and then escape, to their rocket ship with a captive creature and the other skeletal creatures in pursuit. One of the men pulls the rocket ship off a cliff and the spacecraft falls back to Earth where it lands in the sea. A ship hauls it to land where the explorers are greeted with fanfare, receiving giant medals that feature the man in the moon. A statue is erected of the leader of the explorers. All right, David. I know that you said that you have seen this short many, many times. Um, What did what do you think about it? And did you see anything or did you notice anything new on this viewing?
1: So, yeah, I've seen I've seen this film a good chunk of times. I think anytime you take a introductory film course or anything dealing with film history, chances are they're going to show you this in combination with uh, some of the Edison shorts, some of the the Lumiere films as well. This was actually my first time seeing it uh, in color because I guess the, the first time I saw it in the mid 2000s, I still hadn't finished the like actual renovation of, of the print. Um, And also this go around, it was accompanied by a narrator, I guess, as um, as would have been expected during the original during the, the original screenings of the film. So. Kind of in those ways, this was very much a new experience for me. Uh, I can't talk up enough the color version of this film. I think it it looks really beautiful. I don't know how big of a fan I was of the narration, but I still think it makes it makes for kind of an interesting and, and perhaps more authentic viewing experience. But yeah, I mean, I, you know, I enjoyed it.
0: Yeah, I think that's definitely true, and I'll be getting more into that a little bit later. But for me, I watched the color version without narration, and um, despite the fact that I probably missed a lot of details because of that, it was still very enjoyable. So I wanted to start by talking about Georges Méliès, who... would you characterize him as the director of a film this early? Uh, Sure. Okay. Well um yeah he's definitely the creator of this film and he's the only person you see credited because at this period they didn't put credits in films so at the beginning you see the title card with the name of the film and then his name and he al- also happens to um play the role of the professor the leader of the explorers in the in the movie would you call it a movie yeah yeah you could <laughs> <laughs> um he is is considered the first um or one of the first to utilize film as narrative, so prior to a trip to the moon, he had also done Cinderella in eighteen ninety nine and Joan of Arc in nineteen hundred um and he would go on to do a number of other films, although this one is probably the one that he's most remembered for, and um as happens sometimes he doesn't really. He's said to have not thought this was really his best work or anything particularly special, but nevertheless, this is the one that's, that's kind of stuck in um, mm-hmm. cultural memory. He credited Jules Verne for the inspiration for this short, particularly Verne's novels From the Earth to the Moon and Around the Moon, and Mélier was considered among the first cinematic auteurs We've kind of mentioned this in the past on this podcast. I wonder, David, if you could kind of talk about auteurs and what auteur theory actually is.
1: To kind of put it in a nutshell, auteur theory is basically the idea that the director of a film is, in essence, its author. I think w- when you were saying earlier about how uh, Melier, um, <laughs> a- about how Melier is the only credited person on this film. I think that's that's really kind of epitome of outdoor theory. He's a director. He kind of constructed this. This is all his vision. And so a lot of kind of art cinema in particular, you don't see this as much with like popular film now, but art cinema has been really, really focused on the outdoor theory, right? So you're watching a Godard film, you're watching something by Truffaut, you're watching um, Kurosawa, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, the word auteur translates to author, uh, but that's actually, I think, in in many ways a very bad comparison, because making a film is very much unlike writing a novel, Uh, unless you are perhaps Harry Everett Smith making uh, Heaven and Earth Magic all film is going to be a deeply, deeply collaborative process. Uh, So you're going to have, um, in some cases, a person who came up with a story and then the screenwriter and then, you know, the director, the actors, the cinematographer, the camera operator, the gaffer, all these people who are contributing creative ideas. Uh, So like our tour theory is in some sense, very reductive, but, it seems to be a very uh, a much easier way of speaking about films as being kind of singular items, singular works of art. It's a lot easier to discuss them if you can talk about a single author as opposed to kind of a combination of professionals that doesn't exist from film to film or at least not in that exact same way.
0: And I, although, like, as we'll see, this film was a huge undertaking. I wonder if it wasn't easier to, for a filmmaker to be an auteur in the early days because filmmaking wasn't as complex as it is today. So from what I was reading, Mellier was involved in everything about this film.
1: Uh, Yeah, I'd I'd say that's probably a pretty, a pretty good guess. I guess uh, one thing I didn't mention, um... Part of, uh, I guess, part of our tour theory is also somewhat based on the t- typical production model. And I've mentioned this before, but in, in kind of standard Hollywood production, the director is a figure on the set who only makes creative choices. He or she, they are not saying to the lighting crew, oh, you need to place this light over here, place this light over here, and we need this exact... He is perhaps saying like, oh, we need... Uh, more shadow on this actor's face, right? Like that kind of that more abstract creativity and then other people kind of carry out the technical specifics. Uh, so I think here, like you were saying with Melier, that's uh, significant because it 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 represents kind of how small, I guess, how small the crew would have been at that time.
0: So So a more conventional director is a little bit like a fashion designer who doesn't know how to sew. They are just like, here's this dress, and they draw it. You figure out the technicalities. They tell the tailors and seamstresses, right?
1: Yeah, that's a perfect example.
0: Okay. Would you be able to give an example of maybe two more modern films? One which has maybe kind of an auteur director, and another that's, I guess, more conventional director?
1: So I guess I I don't I don't want to specifically say that there's like there are two categories that there is auteur and there's a conventional director because I guess I apologize. I don't think I I explained it well, Um, like an auteur and a conventional director are essentially one the same.
0: So you're saying that and maybe any director can be considered an auteur. It's just more the theory that people take when they the theory that people apply when they analyze film.
1: Uh, Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So um, and just to kind of do do a modern example. So like Paul Thomas Anderson, whose most recent film was a phantom thread. He's an auteur, right? People talk about when's the next PTA film going to come out. He did this. He did that. Here's been the trajectory of his career. Everyone talks about the films he's done in terms of him. Whereas, uh, gosh, I, I guess. Like a Marvel
0: um, movie director would not be analyzed like that, perhaps.
1: Uh, yeah, I would say it would be kind of an odd, it would be an odd way of looking at it. Uh, Marvel, kind of Marvel fans in the Marvel community, they're going to talk about directors and what they do, but it wouldn't be as much like Iron Man 1 and 2, those are so distinctly like John Favreau films. No, they're like the first Iron Man films, right? Like in that in that kind of further abstracted notion.
0: So when we say that Mellier was among the first cinematic auteurs, what we really mean is that he he was one of the first people to be analyzed as such.
1: Right. I would, this is kind of just me spitballing, but I think part of that is also because of the narrative element. Um, mm-hmm. Because, uh, you know, the other slice of life films, it's kind of harder to analyze like Edison as an auteur because he was kind of just photographing things that happened without a a distinct kind of sense of composition.
0: Incidentally, because I don't mention this anywhere later, but Edison was responsible for uh, distributing pirated copies of this film in the United States, which should surprise nobody because it's Thomas Edison.
1: (laughs) That is so funny. As a, a quick digression for those who don't know, Edison was also a tyrant during this period and would literally send out groups of thugs who were using his uh, projector camera equipment without his patent, without his permission to go, you know, beat them up and break stuff. Edison was a horrible, horrible person.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so as I mentioned there, except for um, Melier, there's no credits in this film. But with historical context, people have been able to figure out some of the people who did participate as actors in this. And um, most of them were already some kind of performer. So we had at least one magician. We had an acrobat troupe. We had um, cabaret and ballet dancers, um, people who were known from the stage, right, at the time. But, you you know, when you watch this short, you don't, and, and as I'll get into more detail about this later, but it's shot with one camera that doesn't move. And it's like you're looking at a theatrical production. You see all these people in the frame doing a bunch of stuff at once. There are no close-ups. So if you're watching this movie and you don't have the benefit of narration or anything, it becomes very difficult to distinguish the different characters and to honestly really tell what's going on. So I kind of wondered... Within the limited scope of a silent short, so you also don't, this is only, what? what is it, like 12, 15 minutes, something like that? It's very brief. So you don't even have a lot of time to kind of get used to looking at the characters to where you could figure out who's who. Since everybody is kind of relatively anonymous, I wonder, David, what you think the talents of these individual actors contribute to the final product. Like, is it super important that you have magicians and acrobats in there? Why couldn't you just use the modern equivalent of extras so you don't have to pay them as much and just put them in there, you know?
1: Uh. Well, that's... um. That is an awfully corporate mindset you have there.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm not saying Um, I agree, but, you know.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, so first off, I think, like you were saying, why not just use extras? I don't know how much the idea of extras would have have been at the time. There's a famous Lumiere Brothers film that I've mentioned before. Uh, I can't remember the exact title, but they set up a camera and they record. It's like a, a workers exiting the Lumiere Brothers factory. And it's just people, you know, people are working for them exiting the factory. Uh, so they're not trained actors or anything, and they just recorded them. And so I think that it makes sense in that context because of, again, the kind of slice of life, like, we're literally just recording something and kind of experimenting with that technology because we can. As opposed to if you have something that is more narrative, you would expect, like I think it would, it would be almost common sense to use performers. Plus, I think I I want to emphasize that I think there's a great deal of, of talent here as well. Like I th- I thought everyone was very funny. I think in some ways it looks uh very silly to us and and outdated, and it's it's a little bit hard to. understand what's going on but I think the idea of like me personally doing that I wouldn't be able to because I don't have the kind of comfort uh, with my body that like you need to, to do some of these like kind of more physical performances, even if you're not, you know, cartwheeling and doing backflips or something like your body as an instrument is, is very much a thing. And I think I'm sure Melier having worked in the theater and with performers and everything, I'm sure that was something he was keenly aware of.
0: This film was the longest that Méliès had made to date, and it was also super expensive and very complex to make. And the way that they filmed it was that they had a glass-walled and a glass-ceilinged building that they filmed everything inside. And what was particularly expensive for them was the mechanical scenery. So there were so many moving parts when you watch them you know, quote unquote, get into the rocket ship and then these ladies push the rocket ship so that it can take off and stuff. All that stuff was uh, mechanized. And obviously you didn't have it was it was a lot of like flat, you know, 2D set pieces. But they still had to um, be engineered in such a way that they could move easily. And that was very expensive, apparently. Also, the Selenite costumes, the Selenites, by the way, were the kind of skeletal creatures that were on the moon. Their costumes were also super expensive to put together. And um, this is a little digression, but I wanted to mention that the summary that I gave up top of the movie is just a summary of kind of my viewing of it, but there's actually a lot more detail. Um, And I'm going to provide a source at the end of the podcast that you can go to if you want to read super in detail about the movie, and you'd be able to know more of that detail if you had a narrator, um, which I didn't have. Um, But one of those details is that the the creatures on the moon were the Selenites. So yeah, they had really expensive costumes. Mellier, by this point, he had done several movies before, so he had invented a lot of techniques and also learned a lot of different techniques, and he employed a lot of them in making this movie. So just a couple of examples. One is the substitution splice um, that he uses a couple of times in this film. So there's When they're on the moon and they encounter the Selenites, there's a couple times where those Selenite creatures appear to just disappear. They're there one moment and the next moment they're just a puff of dust. And the way that they would make that happen is they would stop rolling the camera and then take the Selenite actor away and then start rolling the camera again to where it looks like he's gone and they throw up the dust or whatever and then they would splice that together in the film so it would make it look like they actually disappeared. Um, And I think you see this a lot in early films.
1: Um, Another term for that technique is jump cut, uh, which is something that I think you'll, you'll hear used more regularly uh, in like contemporary film.
0: And then something else you'll be able to notice easily if you watch this film is Towards the end, when the rocket ship comes back to Earth and falls into the sea or the ocean, that part is animated. So this is some early animation you get to see. David, you mentioned that this was your first time seeing the colored version of this film. And I also watched a colored version. And at the time that they made it, they distributed it mostly in black and white. But they did have a certain number of prints that were in color. And all of that was done by hand. So this is something I found really interesting. Uh, a woman named Elizabeth Puyet ran a coloring lab in France. And what they would do is they would take the film stock and then they had 200 people painting it assembly line style. So basically, each person would have one color. And they would go into the film stock in one frame and then say they had red, they just go in and paint everything that was supposed to be red and then pass it to the next person. that person had blue and they'd go in and paint everything that was supposed to be blue and pass it on and on and on and on. Um, And that's how they did every single copy. I thought it was really interesting that the coloring lab was run by a woman because we've talked about before when we talked about the making of Magic Boy, right? The early toy films and also Disney films, how a lot of times women were put in charge of the color in animation and things like that. And I just thought that was so interesting that that was the case also in the very very early 20th century with this kind of work. The color version of the film was actually thought to be totally lost until they discovered a copy of it in 1993 in Catalonia, I believe. And then it took them like a couple of years to reassemble it digitally because the copy that they found, the edges had kind of melded together over the decades. And but fortunately, like the middle part hadn't. So they had to kind of pick it, pick apart the film by the edges and then restore it. And then in the end, they still had frames that were missing, but they were able to replace those frames with uh, frames from the black and white copies and then color those digitally so that now we have the color version that we can watch. We don't know if this colored version is one of the ones from Elizabeth Thuyer's coloring lab, but we do know that it would have been really, really early. I also saw, and I only saw this in one source, so who knows, but evidently there was one more colored cop- copy discovered in a barn in France in 2002. Yeah.
1: that uh i've mentioned this before on the podcast but it's like how that um the missing reels from metropolis how they were found in like a warehouse in brazil like these things turn up in the most random places
0: (laughs) oh i know it's like where i like store my pigs and horses i'm just gonna (laughs) throw some junk over here yeah who knows um So I guess, David, you, uh, you, you've you you seen the movie in black and white and in color. So which of those do you prefer? And then in general, what kind of impressed you about the sets or any of the production in this movie?
1: I only watch the color version this go around. So I'll have to watch the black and white again and kind of judge based on that. But just at this moment, I would say the color version was... Uh, the more enjoyable experience. And I think it, it allows you to have kind of a greater appreciation for how elaborate, you know, how elaborate the sets and the costume designs are Uh, because the black and white version, although it's, it's all things considered well-preserved, uh, a lot of the times when like there are problems with the film and you know some of the stuff blurs it just doesn't look quite as good that on top of it being black and white i think makes it easier to kind of disconnect from like all the all the work on like the mise en scene but with the color version i think it really it really brings everything to life. And I'm sure I'm sure a lot of people are familiar back in 2011 Martin Scorsese directed the film Hugo, which is like a fictional story, but it deals a lot with the the kind of legacy of Georges Millet um
0: Keep that <laughs> <Millier>.
1: <laughs> ok. But it deals a lot with the legacy of Georges Millier, And I think, like, I enjoyed that film when I was watching it, But at the same time, I was kind of like, oh, I, I I guess I get it because it's technically important, right? It's technically historically important. But I think watching, the colorized version it made more sense why people were were kind of so attached to this material to me on like uh, an emotional basis Uh, one thing i did want to mention actually i meant to mention this earlier uh when you were discussing the um uh substitution splice or jump cut this is an example of an in-camera effect in-camera effects as opposed to kind of effects in poster effects in editing are things that you can do literally just with the camera to create this kind of you know these kind of magical things happening um so yeah like you would uh, when you would describe that about about stopping the camera moving the actor and then starting it over again to create the impression that he had disappeared right that's a really good example of that
0: to jump into next was the music so when this first came out it would have originally been accompanied by live music and also a narrator medie didn't specify any particular musical accompaniment and just like a lot of silent films um it would have been accompanied by whatever the host theater decided on. It's possible that Melier did commission one of the sound could you even call it a soundtrack? Uh, It's possible that he may have uh, commissioned one of the scores but we're not totally sure. And I wondered what scores you have heard at the various times that you've watched this short and how they affected your impression of the movie.
1: I I can't precisely remember the previous times I've seen the film what the score was what I recall is basically some approximation of what would have been like contemporary music right like semi orchestral, and that was also uh the the music that appeared on the version I saw this week, although it didn't uh it didn't really stick in my mind too much, I think mostly because the narration was such a kind of a dominating element of this film. I think the idea of incorporating a narrator in in modern releases of silent films, I think it's very interesting because this was a really interesting experience. But what did frustrate me a little bit was that there was, it was uh, very clearly like a modern recording and there was no kind of attempt to blend the audio quality of the narrator in with like, I guess, what we expect audio to sound like from older films. Uh, Not that, I, I suppose not that that would be any more... Accurate necessarily, but I think that that might have gone a little bit further in in establishing the suspension of disbelief.
0: Something that I hadn't mentioned to this point is that this early on in films, they didn't have, not only did they not have credits, they didn't have intertitles. So you didn't really have anything, if you watch it without a narrator, you don't have anything other than the actor's actions to help you figure out what's going on. Since you said you were a little bit disappointed with the version that you watched, first of all, the version that I saw, um, it did have music, and it it was a modern score provided by a French band. Um, And it doesn't really stick in my head, but also I felt like it was unintrusive. Some criticisms that I've been reading online recently is about how some contemporary bands will provide a score to a silent film, but they'll use it like a free music video to where rather than supporting the film they're actually putting their music in the foreground uh to the detriment of the artistic quality of what you're supposed to be focusing on so i could see maybe like with your with your case it kind of seems like maybe they were a little bit maybe they didn't have the budget or maybe the artistic finesse to make it fit well with the film but i i guess it's fair to use a silent film as a source for a music video but then you have to market it as a music video and not as look at me restoring this old movie and isn't my music great
1: I I don't know I don't know if I 100% agree I think uh, surely it would be dependent it would certainly be a case by case basis this is uh this is a bit of a tangent but newer films uh and newer popular films uh, something I've noticed and a lot of people have discussed this is that their scores tend to be like wholesale completely forgettable. It's very difficult to remember. We always go back to Marvel, but again, Marvel is so is so dominant in cinema. It's hard not to talk about it. It's hard to remember, like, oh, is there, a, a like, a motif for Captain America? And, like, what is that? I don't recall it, and I've seen a couple of those movies, you know? And ditto for any of the other heroes. And part of that, there was, I, I saw a YouTube video discussing this many years ago, Part of the problem is that a lot of times what will happen is that composers will be brought in after production and they will be sent, uh, you know, like clips of the film or maybe a rough cut of the film along with a temp track, which is basically like say I directed the new Ant-Man or whatever and I've got my rough cut and then I decide I really want like Wagner or something for one particular scene I'll just put a recording of the Wagner in there and then send it to my composer and say, I want something that sounds like this. And so what you often get is composers who are having to fit a very particular expectation, but simultaneously avoid copyright infringement, you know, because sometimes they'll use like if I make an action adventure and I put the Pirates of the Caribbean theme in there you got to make it different enough so that it doesn't, again, it doesn't like break the law and fringe on that copyright, but similar enough so that the director is pleased. And as a result, you wind up getting kind of copies of copies of copies and these same ideas that are iterated so frequently they have no personality of their own all this is to say it's it's obviously very possible for a score to be obtrusive to be overreaching and and kind of domineering but at the same time I think that's something that can be a really interesting viewing experience and I think especially for silent films where we don't have a sense of what the expectation for the music would have been originally, that's a wonderful opportunity to experiment in kind of loud, uh, grandiose ways. Because, you know, the alternative, I think, is to maybe mute your television and experience it that way, which, um, as I found out with... uh, With the previous film we covered, Within Our Gates, that's actually a very interesting way to watch silent films.
0: The process you're kind of describing where the director's like, give me music like this. It's kind of the polar opposite of what we talked about when we discussed Psycho last week. And wasn't it that the composer was actually present at the filming of the movie?
1: Right, and he was um, again. Depending on who you listen to, he was the one demanding a musical cue during like the the shower murder scene.
0: So, for example, if the director says, "Here's this scene," here's Wagner or something, something. I mean, Wagner is that's what is it out of copyright? So why they could just say like, "Let's play Wagner here."
1: Okay, so that that was probably a bad example. I should say that like most of the times this will be another film's score
0: also Wagner literally is used a lot in films almost to the point where if you use it now i feel like it's parody you know what i mean because um i was (laughs) so um there's a very brief scene in crazy rich asians where they use Ride of the valkyries and it's very clearly kind of making fun of the situation at hand there I think because that score has been used so many times throughout cinema that you can't – and it's so recognizable, right, to people who don't even know where it comes from. Everybody knows that tune. So I guess maybe that's why they wouldn't be, like, literally put in Wagner here if they're trying to be serious, you know?
1: Oh, sure. That could be. And I mean, also on the other – kind of on the other end of it, perhaps – a good reason for composers to try and play it safe is that I know Stanley Kubrick commissioned a score for 2001 A Space Odyssey from Philip Glass and then basically threw the entire thing out.
0: Oh, no! <laughs> he <laughs> so, threw out Philip Glass?
1: Yeah, that, yeah, well, you know, I mean, like, Kubrick w- w- is a genius, but also he, like, very much knew it, you know?
0: <laughs> this film has been characterized as a cinema of attractions. So as I have mentioned before, again, even though at the time you already had cameras that could move, this film was made with one camera in place, creating a stage kind of setup. There were no intertitles. So I have like, I have a question here for you, but I already have a an answer to it. Um, I was going to ask you, what does this movie kind of remind you of that we experience nowadays?
1: Well, so this is kind of a loose association, but I think maybe there can be a, a kind of clear and direct line between this and the blockbuster pop culture films, particularly the ones pioneered by like George Lucas and Steven Spielberg uh just in the sense that the the key element of the film is the spectacle it's watching indiana jones run away from the boulder it's it's uh watching luke skywalker um you know confront darth vader with his lightsaber right that's the thing it it reminded me the most of
0: And I think that's why it's been it's been considered a cinema of attractions where it impacts the audience the way maybe a musical would, where like you're talking about, it's more about the spectacle rather than getting into the weeds about the narrative and a lot of like careful editing and that kind of thing. And so what it really reminded me the most of when I watched it was um, going to Disneyland and writing one of those 3D rides, you know, when you're in like the seat and the seat moves, and then you're, I think it's the Star Wars one that I'm thinking of the most, but there's a lot of examples like that where you go in and it's an experience and there's a super basic plot and you're only in there for like 10 minutes or less and the end. And it was really fun. That's what I thought of automatically watching this, especially given that the um, subject was science fiction. And I've also seen science fiction in general characterized as cinema of attractions. Although I suppose that could depend a lot on what science fiction film you're talking about. But that's what a lot of people characterize it as.
1: I think that's a really good example. And Disneyland and and kind of Disney theme parks in general very closely resemble uh, the work of Georges Méliès. Especially, I, I think, not even just within the rides, although the rides are a great example. But kind of the idea of the park as being designed uh, to, you know, kind of to push people in particular directions and and hiding speakers within rocks to give this, you know, kind of, oh, I'm near, kind of near the Winnie the Pooh ride. I'm hearing the Winnie the Pooh theme, et cetera, et cetera, uh, which is all very uh, theatrical and stage-like.
0: Yeah, and something that I think is also super interesting to think about And that we have talked a little bit about on this podcast back when we talked about our um, silent horror films is that this early in cinema, um, filmmakers didn't know how their audience were going to understand their film. So I think one of the examples you had given is that. We who have grown up obviously with TV and movies, we know that when the camera looks at person A, and person A talks, and then at person B, and person B talks, we can put it together that they're con- they're having a conversation. But when film first began, it wasn't necessarily obvious that people would understand that. And this short, I felt like didn't, I mean it it, it still made a lot of assumptions, but maybe less than later films did because they didn't do any close-ups. Um, or anything like that but an example of a su- of of an assumption that they did make was when the rocket ship lifts off from earth and goes to the moon and you see it crash into the eye of the moon you see it club the moon in the eye but then you also go next to a camera that's set up on the moon quote unquote and you see the rocket ship landing again so it's the same thing that you already saw um, just close up. So it's like Melier was assuming that his audience could understand that this is not two separate events, but actually the same event shown twice from different perspectives.
1: Absolutely. And I think it could be argued also that that that's a reflection of kind of a, a sense that the film has of a a somewhat loose connection to reality, right? Like I don't want to put words in his mouth and I'm, you know, there are people who spend their entire lives studying this period, in film, uh, so I'm I'm by no means an expert here, but I'd be willing to bet that if there was any discussion about whether the audience would understand that, like, the the vessel crashing into the moon and then seeing the separate shot of the, the vessel landing, if there was any debate over whether the audience would understand that, it would make sense that they would kind of go with, well, even if they don't, Perhaps the broad picture overall makes sense. And the idea is, again, that spectacle, not necessarily a specific narrative coherence.
0: Right. To reiterate, Me- uh, Melier was working with narrative film, and that was kind of a new concept. So even more so than slice of life ty- types of films, it's a lot of experimenting with with what your audience is going to understand. And I wanted to bring this up because it was so fascinating. And I wondered if you'd heard about this. They did some research because they kind of wanted to understand what it was like when people first got to see films. And they found some very isolated um, people living out in Turkey in the modern day who had somehow never seen a video before. They showed them videos to try to understand how much of it they could understand. Understand without prior exposure to the medium. And what they discovered was that if you show somebody a video and they have never seen a video before, and the video is about something that they're completely unfamiliar with, so for example, they're living in some very isolated part of Turkey, and you show them like maybe science fiction or something, then a lot of it will go over their head because they're not used to information being relayed that way. However, if you show them a video of something that they are familiar with, for example, a video of somebody cooking, because everybody cooks, then they could understand it a lot better. But the only people who understand the medium perfectly are ones who have seen video, who have seen film before, who have been exposed to that language in the past. Um, And that would have been the case for early audiences of film. And I just thought that was super, super interesting.
1: I think this is a really interesting discussion because uh, the period we're discussing is specifically a moment in which filmmakers are trying to discover that for themselves, right? That question of, like, what will audiences comprehend? Edwin S. Porter and D.W. Griffith were famous for their kind of giant strides in the area of, of narrative filmmaking and, and storytelling through this medium. So a commonly cited example is Porter's Life of an American uh, fireman that was revolutionary, or at least it's said to have been revolutionary because it was an example of cross cutting so cross cutting is a term that we use when we have two separate events, two separate pieces of action occurring simultaneously, and we go between the two in life of an American fireman. We have an interior of a of an apartment building, and it shows how you know this fire starts and everything, and then we cut to a firehouse. Uh, And the, you know, the firemen like getting the call and and taking off. And then we cut back to the interior of of the building and we see how the fire has progressed. And this was uh, said to be revolutionary because it wasn't known that you could cut between two separate pieces of action and have the audience understand that the firemen are going to that apartment to put out the fire. These two elements are related. That being said, there's actually been kind of new information that's come out about that. So apparently that film was edited after the fact, uh, I I believe probably after Porter died. So the cross-cutting actually likely didn't exist in uh, the cut of the film that he had produced. But still, like, this is kind of the period where they're experimenting with this.
0: I wonder if the experience for a viewer wasn't something like the way we experience films or even books, maybe, that have unconventional narrative structures, you know, the ones that are not linear and they bounce around a lot. And when we watch them, we maybe get a little bit confused and have to talk about it after the movie to figure out what actually happened, you know?
1: Probably. And and I mean, I think it's it's interesting because we adapt very quickly to kind of non-standard narrative techniques, for example, uh, uh, the first time I read a Cormac McCarthy book, uh, for those of you who don't know, Cormac McCarthy is an author who does not believe in using quotation marks
0: or um, in first names. Apparently, sorry, <laughs> sorry,
1: that took me a second. Like, no, he is his first. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> So he, his, I don't know about all of his novels, but the, um, of the, the one I've read, uh, he doesn't use quotation marks. And I remember the first time going through it, like having such a difficult time kind of comprehending, wait, like someone is speaking now and which parts, you know, what exactly is going on. And then the second time, feeling none of that friction and it going like very, very easily. So uh, that's, you know, that's a single example that doesn't reflect people writ large. But I think it's probably a pretty good bet that we we all learn very quickly how to digest media after that first point of exposure.
0: Interestingly, he was born Charles McCarthy and he changed his own name. So he really didn't believe in first names.
1: <laughs> I'm really glad you took away the importance of that story. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, I, I I think you're totally right. And, you know, just because somebody has never been exposed to film before doesn't mean they don't pick it up quickly once they get into it. Right. Right. So next. And I was kind of. Before I saw this film, I kind of wondered how much we would be able to delve into less superficial parts of it just because I thought this is such an early film, like how much is there to analyze? But it turns out there actually is. The most obvious theme to me was um, imperialism. So as a reminder they they they're explorers they go to the moon and they find people creatures we're not really sure native inhabitants who have some kind of social structure living there and then they attack them and capture one of them and bring them back to earth and also when they arrive back to earth there's kind of a parade um they get medals and there's also a statue of the leader right played by Melier um and that is all meant to be kind of a farcical portrayal of explorers of um, imperialists. And um, this makes sense because Mélier had a background as a political cartoonist. um, And in the 1890s, he had done political cartoons in the 1890s that were anti-nationalist and anti-colonialist. Something that I thought was super interesting is that if you watch this in color, the version that you'll be seeing is the copy that they got from Spain and when they first launched the rocket ship, there's a flag that they have there, and it's colored, it looks like the Spanish flag. So evidently, whenever this film was done in color for a particular market, they would color the flag to correspond with the country that it was being released in. So I thought it was really interesting that Melier had an anti-imperialist message, and then it was even being personalized for the particular national audience. I thought that was, oh, that Interesting. Anyway, so that was the big theme that stuck out to me. Um, But also another theme that I read about was more so that they were poking fun at scientists or at the very least at their pretentiousness. So, David, as you kind of mentioned before, there's a lot of I mean, this film is just ridiculous. There's all kinds of physical impossibilities and all that's intentional. The one that sticks out to me the most is when they come back from the moon, they do it by Um, pulling the ship off a cliff on the moon (laughs) that makes it come back to Earth. And also all the characters have these ridiculous costumes, most notably the wizard hats. And, you know, the cheerleaders are in funny kind of like bathing suits um, and all these kinds of things. The issue I had was that I could find a reason for this film having anti-imperialist messaging, but I couldn't really understand, first of all, whether it was meant to be anti-science or whether it was meant to just be anti the pretentiousness of some scientist. I couldn't find information about that. There were a few books that were cited on the Wikipedia article, for example, but I wasn't able to access them. Um, and it, it's a theme that kind of bothered me because we're, you know, I'm thinking of like anti-vaxxers and flat earthers and stuff. Um, so I don't really know what angle uh, Melier was going for. I wonder, David, if you happen to know
1: so I don't know specifically uh, as far as the kind of criticism of scientists or science. Uh, I do, I I do want to venture out though and say that criticizing scientists and that profession and that field is not necessarily the same, same thing as being an anti-vaxxer is being, you know, flat earth or whatever other nonsense, because also I you know, as a side note, I was watching this movie um with Allie, my wife, uh, and we saw the introductory um part where the scientists are arguing and one of them one of them objects to this this idea of going to the moon and the leader scientist played by Millier uh throws a book at him and they have a fight <laughs> and then they kind of put him in a corner and like move on with their lives. Watching this with her, and she's um she's a uh a scientist uh, and she was talking about how like oh this is you know this isn't that unlike academia right <laughs> like <laughs> um so i think there there is there's is a lot of i i don't know that much about this period especially this period in the sciences but there is plenty of criticism to be leveled at scientists writ large I thought at the imperialist angle I had actually for all the times I've seen this again because every basically every film class every introductory film class will show this to you I don't think they've ever discussed the kind of imperialist element of it or or rather the anti-imperialist a farcical imperialist element of it Uh, so as a side note i i was listening to the three-part three-part series that the podcast citations needed did on the depiction of muslims within uh like western films and so in in those episodes they're talking a lot about kind of the the pro-CIA pro-war machine tropes that are developed and and kind of the the United States uh the favorite activity being you know bombing brown people watching this movie and sitting there and seeing them you know get to the moon and one of the members of the the expedition runs up and and kills the the selenite i suppose king or emperor and then they all run away that just struck me as so funny like oh hey that's like what happens in real life and then i saw your (laughs) notes and like oh that this all makes sense now (laughs) (laughs) so um you know i have to admit i i approached this kind of the same way you did thinking that this was mostly going to be an experiment in maybe early film technique and kind of a uh, comedy entertainment. Uh, but those those elements are certainly there.
0: Yeah, I mean, and also with these super early movies, without a lot of background information, it can be really difficult to kind of figure out what kind of cultural references the filmmakers are making um, and, you know, what all the nuances were of the culture at the time. You never know what kind of specific event they may be referencing that will just go over our heads, you know? So that was why I was disappointed that I couldn't find any more information, particularly about the science angle. The last thing I wanted to talk about was how, in comparison to all the other movies that we've watched to this point, I really think that this film truly predates the world that we grew up in. Before this, the earliest films that we'd watched were from 1920. And even though that was a long time ago, that's still within the lifespan of one of our grandparents. And I guess for me, if our grandparents were alive when something came out, that feels relatively proximate to my life experience. And I feel that there's something that you can kind of relate to in all of those films if they're portraying the way things were at the time. But this movie from 1902 is so early, it really feels like a long, long time ago. And I think that just makes it all the more fascinating to watch. But on that note, I wondered, how would you recommend this movie to somebody watching it in 2020, 120 years later almost? And I guess, what are your maybe final thoughts about it?
1: Well, to um, to your point and to cite the uh, the tagline of this podcast, this is actually... I believe the first episode we're doing that is literally true of every potential audience member. None of us were alive during this thing. So it it really is it's hard for it to not feel like pretty much ancient history. I would say it's a very short commitment, right? This film is is 12 minutes and I think there's a lot to get out of it. Uh and I think it's absolutely worth watching because i mean 12 minutes that's you know it's shorter than many youtube videos uh people watch so that's d- definitely worth it i think it is harder it's harder for this period again especially the the super formative years of film because in some ways the only way to appreciate it is kind of from a historical perspective like i think the uh, as i had said before the mise-en-scène is very interesting and the costumes are are very interesting and a lot of the performances are fun, but it is just so distant from all of our experiences. Uh, I think the best way to watch it is kind of thinking about this, at this point, this medium is is what, maybe seven years old. You know, narrative films are barely a thing at this point. Uh, and, and kind of keeping those things in mind, I think it's a lot easier to have a a great appreciation for what this does.
0: I was thinking about how almost seeing a film of this age is more alienating than reading a book that was published even a hundred years before that, just because of the technological gap, right? When you read a book from... 1802, and you read a book from today, you're dealing with the same set of technology. So, even it, it, if it was a long time ago, you can kind of immerse yourself into it and relate with the characters, even though it's over 200 years old. But this movie from 1902, because it's dealing with such early technology and such an early understanding of how to use the medium, it makes it feel longer, like it makes it feel farther away in time and less relatable to me. Do you feel that way at all?
1: I mean, I I totally agree. Like a a novel from this time feels more more recent and more immediate. Uh, I don't know that it's 100%. It's like technologically related, but I don't know that specifically because they had limited technology when they made it. If there were a way for us to have a brand new pressing of this film, like the original film reels just totally perfectly kept intact... Uh, and we were able to view it on a projector, I think it might feel a bit different. But a lot of the, I think the perceived age, at least for me, is seeing how thoroughly degraded it is. Even, you know, the rest, I, I do want to say the restoration looks gorgeous, uh, and I highly recommend viewing it, but you can never shake this the sense that you are viewing something that's uh, kind of, this may be an exaggeration, but that feels almost impossibly old uh just to correct one thing i said earlier i i alluded to the idea that the the motion pictures were 1895 but the kinetograph the dixon kinetograph was actually invented in 1890 so this was 12 years after the existence of the uh the first motion picture camera
0: i was thinking if we were to see this movie in perfect shape maybe we would interpret it as oh this is some kind of like for me personally, because you know my taste, I'd be like, what is this like surrealist craziness? You know? <laughs> <laughs> I'm because I, I thought about that. I, I was like, oh, this is so kind of surreal, especially at the part where they're in their sleeping bags on the moon and they see like people in the stars um and mythological figures and the planets. So I'm like, oh, it's kind of like surreal-ish. But evidently that was supposed to be them dreaming. Um, yeah, I yeah, watch this movie. It takes you 12 minutes, and it's it's just interesting. Well, let me get into our sources for today. The first one you'll definitely want to look at if you want to know all the ins and outs. Like You can find out the character names and stuff from this movie. Um, it's from the AMC film site. Um, and by the way, all our references, as always, will be in the show notes. So you can go to the first link that you see there. Um, my other sources were uh, Canopy. Um, where you can go watch this film in color without the narration and get some information about the restoration af- uh, about the restoration efforts. Um, also, the blog movies silently, the blog silentology. Another source today was Catherine Singer Kovitch's article George Mélier and the Ferry in Cinema Journal, and finally Wikipedia, as always. If you want to check us out on social media, we are Maybe Today Matinee on Instagram and Facebook at Mayday Matinee on Twitter. Um, You can find Maybe Today Matinee on Patreon as well if you would like to throw us a few coins. Check in next week for 1963's Scorpio Rising as part of our short films theme this month. I'm Monica. I'm David. And this is Maybe Today Matinee.